Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Well, that was a great introduction, and I am so thankful to be here. Obviously, uh, love my family, my dad, my mom, and my heroes, and um, so it's, just, it's great to be here and to be able to serve you. Also, even though I never came here as a student, I love this seminary, and I love what it is about, and um, I'm thankful that you're here, and I am excited about the opportunity that you're getting to be trained uh, at this great institution. If you have a Bible, go with me to Luke chapter 10, be in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, Luke chapter 10, verse 25, a story that's no doubt familiar to every single one of us, and if you would, let me ask you to do this, would you please stand to your feet out of reverence for reading the words of God? We'll start there in verse 25, and we'll go down through verse 37. Luke wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. You know, every church that I have pastored or every group that I have led in terms of trying to disciple them, um, when I have called those churches or called those groups to love other people the way that Christ loves us, I've gotten pushback and I've gotten uh, basically whataboutism and all these kind of questions about what are the exceptions to, to loving people the way that, that Jesus loves us. I, I know I'm supposed to love my wife the way that Jesus loves the church, but what about when she's not as responsive to me as she should be? I, I know that I should tip my waiter generously, but what about if I get bad service? When it comes to the poor, I know I'm supposed to give to the poor, but what about those who refuse to help themselves? When it comes to forgiving those who have wronged you, I, I know I'm supposed to forgive, but what if that person doesn't repent? I don't want to enable bad behavior. 
when it comes to mercy. People will say, I know I'm supposed to show mercy, but what about not being taken advantage of? Jesus does not want us to be doormats. When it comes to missions, I know God wants us to take the gospel to every people group on the planet, but what about the people who live right here? When it comes to foreigners, I know what the Bible says about loving the stranger in our midst, but what about the people who are here illegally? And on and on. What about this? What about that? And here's the deal. I, I get it because in my own heart, there are, there are those times when I, when I am faced with loving somebody that I don't really want to love in that moment. I certainly don't want to love them the way that Christ has loved me. And so I, I get the pushback. The standard is very high and, and we fail to meet that standard. And so we push back against it so that we can avoid the guilt. And we push back against it with these exception clauses. And that's exactly what we have happening here in this story. There's a theologian that basically, what about Jesus? You know, he says, well, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's right. And then he says, well, well, well what about this? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells this story that, that we have called the Good Samaritan to to call not only this man, but us through the Spirit, to call us to radical love of neighbor. Now, the, the challenge for us is that this story is so familiar that we assume that it is safe, right? I mean, the, the, the phrase, Good Samaritan, is a phrase that we use in our vernacular here in 21st century America to just talk about being nice to people. You know, you have, you have Good Samaritan hospitals, you have Good Samaritan laws, okay, for many of you in the room are young, but now Seinfeld is back on Netflix, and the whole debacle of a series finale of Seinfeld is, is around this idea of the, the fact that the crew, the, the cast of Seinfeld, failed to be a good neighbor to this man that was being picked on, and so they, they broke a Good Samaritan law, and so they had to spend a year in jail. Sorry if I gave you the the spoiler alert if you're, if you're watching it. It's been out for like 30 years, though, so you, you, know, you, had, you had time to watch it, all right? But Good Samaritan is something that we, just, we use naturally to just say, hey, let's, we should be nice to our neighbor. We should be nice to the people around us. But this story may have been the most controversial story that Jesus ever told because in the first century, Good and Samaritan did not go together. Just like we have happening here in the United States of America. There was, there was huge uh, racial and ethnic tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. There was huge cultural and religious tension between the Jews and the Samaritans because the Samaritans were, were, were half-breeds. They were seen as half-breeds that were, had intermarried with Gentile people during the exile and, and, and during the deportation and had, had this other new race now, new ethnicity called Samaritan. And these were people who early in the first century had defiled the temple. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Luke, uh, just one chapter before this, Jesus is rejected in a town of Samaritans. And, and John, the disciple that Jesus loves, and James, his brother, said, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on these Samaritans? As they wanted to, to zap them and wipe them out. And so there's this massive tension between Jews and Samaritans. And so for Jesus to use as the hero of his story a Samaritan and to say, go and be like him, would be 
like me going to First Baptist Holler Springs on Sunday and saying, you know what I want you to do this morning? I want you to go out of this room and be like a meth addict. And the people in the room are going to be like, what are you talking about? Why did we have you here to preach? And that's the shock of what Jesus is trying to do in this story. He, he wants to shock this man. He wants to expose for this man his own sin. You know, if Jesus were here right now walking on planet earth and he were telling this story for the first time there are communities where jesus might go and tell the story and make the victim a white police officer who was passed by a white guy with a maga hat on and a lady with a pro-life sticker and make the hero a black man wearing a colin kaepernick jersey there are communities where jesus might make the victim a black man who is passed by a liberal Democrat and a black woman wearing a, a Black Lives Matter uh, sticker and make the hero a white police officer. There are places where the hero would be an Afghani refugee or a Mexican immigrant or a homosexual. Jesus tells this story to pop the circuits. You know, people, people often misunderstand in church what the parables are all about. We, we think we know what the parables are, and our, again, our familiarity with them causes us to miss exactly what Jesus is doing. Here, he wants to pop the circuits of this guy to call him to exhibit the radical love of God to everybody around him. And that's exactly what's happening in so many of the parables. Like, we, we grow up and we're told all of these nice-sounding definitions about parables, right? That a, a, a parable, you know what it is, it's just a short story with a moral lesson, or it's, a, it's an earthly story with what? A heavenly meaning, or it's a story that makes one point, or it's, it's Jesus's way of taking something that's really complex and making it simple so that everybody can understand it. But if that's really what the parable's about, then then. Jesus is doing a terrible job because when he tells the parables, oftentimes people leave more confused than they were when they got there. Jesus doesn't tell these stories as some, you know, like heavenly Aesop's fables. Jesus wants to shock them. As, as, as Robert Farrar Capon says, Jesus is not telling the parables to turn the lights on. He's telling them to pop the circuits. And here's why. We are masters at missing the point. We are masters at self-justification. Even like this guy in the text, he, he says he wants to justify himself. I remember when I was first starting out in ministry, I was in my early 20s, and one of the first like, preaching gigs that I got was, was preaching at a, a freshman-sophomore retreat. And so I go to preach at this freshman-sophomore retreat. I'm just out of um, high school, kind of midway through college myself. And for whatever reason, I thought to myself, you know what would be a great thing at this private Christian school with these freshmen and sophomores to preach on would be to preach on pride and humility. And so I preached from Daniel chapter 4, you know, that, that story where Nebuchadnezzar is prideful and God humbles him and he starts to act like a cow. And, and so I wanted to preach this story. And so when I, when I got up to preach that morning at the retreat, I looked out at all these freshmen and sophomores. I said, listen, we're going to talk about pride and we're going to talk about humility today. And here's going to be your tendency. Your tendency while I'm preaching is going to be to think about all of your classmates sitting around you who really need to hear what I'm talking about. But I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to you. 
And so I, I go and preach the sermon, get done. A couple of students come up to me, and this one girl, freshman girl, comes up to me. She's like, John, that was such a great message. I mean, they really needed to hear that. I know, I know, I know, I needed to hear it, but they really needed to hear it. Why did she think like that? Because we are masters at missing the point and at self-justification. I remember in my ministry in Tennessee where we had a, a lady that was uh, being beaten by her husband, and so we had to go. I went there with deacons. We removed her from the house. We sat out on the porch. When the husband came home, we told him exactly what was going on and, and why we were doing it and, and try, to try to work through, you know, uh, counseling with him and with them. And, and one of the amazing things to me, when this, when this, this wife had come to me and, and told me that her husband had, had choked her, basically, where she almost died and she passed out, that, that weeks after that happened, they were in the car driving somewhere, and her husband looked at her and said, you know, you really are fortunate to be married to a husband that's as understanding as I am. And you're like, what in the world? Like, how could he have the lack of self-awareness and the audacity to say that? The reason why is because he does not see himself as an abuser. He does not see himself in that way. He thinks, well, I just made a one-time mistake. Why? Because we're masters at justifying our actions. And so that's why we need stories like this. We need parables to bring conviction, right? When, when Nathan goes to confront David after David has sinned against Bathsheba, he, he doesn't go to David and say, David, you broke a commandment. What's, what's wrong with you? He says, let me tell you a story, David. And he tells a story about the, this rich landowner who goes and steals this one lamb from a poor guy, and David's incensed, and he says, that man deserves to die, and Nathan says, well, you're, you're the man. That's exactly what you've done, and the story that, that Nathan tells to David helps David lower his self-justifying defenses, experience revulsion for his sin, and repent of his sin, and that's what the parables do. In fact, any well-told story can cause us to lower our defenses. Sometimes this is a bad thing. So you can, you can be watching movies and, and watching stories take place where you start to root for things that you shouldn't root for. Okay, like you, you, you watch the, the Godfather and you're, you're rooting for Michael Corleone. And then if you kind of like step outside of yourself and, and think to yourself like, what am I rooting for right now? I'm rooting for a, a gangster who kills people to, to make money. Like, this is awful. Why in the world would I be pulling for this guy? Well, that's, that's the power of narrative. That's the power of story. And Jesus uses this in a good way with, with these parables that cause people to, to, to lower their defenses, to have the circuits blown so that they can see and feel conviction for their own sin. That's what Robert Farrar Capon says about Jesus and the parables. He says this, Jesus balked at almost no comparison, however irreverent or unrefined. Evidently, he found nothing odd about holding up as a mirror to God's ways a mixed bag of questionable characters, an unjust judge, a savage king, a tipsy slave owner, an unfair employer, and even a man who gives help only to bona fide pests. He makes mincemeat of people's religious expectations. Bad people are rewarded, the tax collector, the prodigal, the unjust steward. Good people are scolded, the Pharisee, the older brother, the diligent workers. And everybody's idea of who ought to be first or last is liberally doused with cold water. Jesus tells these stories 
to lower our self-justifying defenses so that we can experience conviction for our sin. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. This man comes to Jesus and he says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you're an expert in the, in the Old Testament. You tell me. And so he mentions the, the two greatest commands, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, okay, yeah, you're right. Go and do that. Now, Jesus doesn't say that because he's like affirming that good works save you. Okay, that's not what G Jesus is doing. He's not saying go and do those things, obey the law, and, and that will save you. What he's doing is exactly what the function of the law is. He's exposing this man's sin. That's what the law, the, the demands of the law are, are first and foremost meant to convict us of our sin, drive us to Christ who died in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve, and was raised from the dead so that we will find mercy in him, so that we will find an alien righteousness and not a righteousness of our own. But it is clear in the Bible that when we receive mercy from God, when we receive saving love from God, we are then called to turn around and show mercy to the people around us. The Protestants have said for years, yes, it is faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. And so this lawyer here knows that he doesn't perfectly love his neighbor as himself, and instead of confessing just, that's true, I don't do that, I need mercy, he tries to justify himself with this what about question. He, he has an exception. Who is my neighbor? We know from the Sermon on the Mount that the Jews in the first century did this with the laws in the Old Testament about love of neighbor and other laws. That they took the love laws that were meant to emphasize how you are supposed to love as yourself, and they turned them into laws about who you are supposed to love, well, who am I really obligated to? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus here in this story wants us to stop asking who and start asking how. Not who are they, what boxes do they check, do they deserve my love, but no, how am I supposed to love them? I'm supposed to love them the way I love myself, and I'm supposed to love them the way that Christ has loved me, because in the tendency of our sinful hearts, there are always certain folks that we don't want to help, that we don't really want to love. It may be because they don't look like us or talk like us, act like us, vote like us, think like us. But Christ tells this story to, to blow that out of the water. And so he tells this story about this guy who's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho would have been a very dangerous journey uh, through the, the, you know, these winding roads where caves were on the side and people could hide and pop out and rob you. And this guy gets robbed and he gets beaten half to death, left for dead. And just by chance, two religious guys go by, right? A priest and a Levite, men who should be showing mercy to him. And they pass by on the other side. We're, we're not told why, and that doesn't, it doesn't really matter. The whole point of the story is, is Jesus wants to get to the Samaritan. That's the shock. This man that should show no love to the Jews, that, that should have beef with the Jews, is instead putting himself at risk by stopping, going over to this man, and lavishly taking care of him, showing him he sees him, and he has compassion on him. And he, he takes him to a, you know, an inn where he can be put up for the night, and he he uh, says, you know, here's 
IOUs, those are as good as money. When I come back, I'll take care of whatever his expenses are. And so Jesus finally gets to the point here, and he says, okay, who proved to be a neighbor to the man that was beaten up by the robbers? And we see in the text, right, that there in verse 37, the, the, the lawyer, the, the, the theologian, can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He's just like, well, I guess it was the guy who was nice to him. And Jesus says, yeah. Now you go be like him. So Jesus tells this story to pop the circuits because he wants us to be moved to compassion for the plight of our neighbor around us, regardless of what boxes they check. He wants us to stop asking who and to start asking how. Now, I'm just be very clear. I'm burdened by this because clearly... The, the need of the world around us right now is to have a church that loves everybody the way that Jesus has loved the church. Now, I, I don't know, you know, people say I, we, we've never been as divided as we are right now. Or things have never been as bad as they are right now. And I'm thinking, well, we, we, you know, I don't know if that's true or not. I've only lived in the, you know, the 40 years that I've been alive. I will say this. I don't, I don't remember a time in my life that we've been as divided as we are right now. And my concern is that while the world around us needs a church that loves like Christ loves us, we are falling way short. We are falling short in method. We are falling short in tone. We are falling short in all kinds of ways. You know, in in terms of method, I find it hilariously ironic that the people who unsuccessfully boycotted Disney are upset about cancel culture. But I do think the church is rightly concerned about cancel culture. The problem is that we're turning around on each other and adopting the exact same methods of the world. We're canceling each other in the church. We're doxing each other in the church all the time, looking for this evidence. Well, you're a racist. No, you're a Marxist. You love the United States of America too much. You don't love the United States of America enough. You hate police officers. You hate African Americans. You're too woke. You're not woke enough. You're too Republican. You're not Republican enough. You're too complementarian. You're not complementarian enough. And we're canceling each other and doxing each other. And my question is, where is the love and the unity in Christ in our churches? Where is our love for those outside the church the way that Christ has loved us? Listen, I'm not saying we have to agree on everything. That's never been what this is about. We are called as Christians to love those who disagree with us, both inside and outside the church. And so what I'm saying is let's stop adopting the methods and the tones of the culture, and let's start adopting the methods and the tones of Christ. What would happen if we, as a church, loved and met the needs of others as we love ourselves? Again, this is, this is something that Keller points out in his book, uh, The Reason for God. He, he points out that while there are some groups in America that have this reputation of being inclusive and kind and tolerant, and the church is seen as, as exclusive and bigoted and, and not tolerant, that, that actually everybody's operating the same way. Everybody's, every group's just as exclusive as any other group. And he uses this illustration. He says, listen, if you have a a local chapter for, uh, you know, gay, lesbian, transgender parents, and there's a board member on that, that, that chapter 
who decides, wakes up one morning and says, you know what? I think homosexuality is a sin. I think the Bible's right on this. And so I don't think that we should be encouraging people who want to adopt, who want to be practicing homosexuals. What's going to happen to that guy if he persists in that belief? He's going to be kicked out of the local chapter. He's going to be excluded. In the same way, if you have a, a local church where there's a, a group of elders and one of the elders in this, in this church that's a Bible-believing church says, you know what? My son came out of the closet and he, he's told me that he's gay and I think he has a right to be gay and I, I think the Bible's wrong on this and so I'm going to encourage him to continue to walk in that way. What's going to happen to that elder? He's going to be asked to step down. He's going to be excluded from the church. And Keller's point is one group has the reputation of being inclusive and tolerant and kind. One group has the reputation of being exclusive and intolerant and unkind, and yet they're both operating the exact same way. He says, how do we know if a group is really being kind, really being loving, really being something different? It's not that they include people in the group that don't believe like them. It's how they treat people who are not in the group. And that's what Christians are supposed to do. We are supposed to treat everybody the way that we would want ourselves treated and the way that Christ has treated us. And if we did that, imagine what that would do for race relations in America. If we were as horrified by unjust things that have happened to people of color, the way we would be if it happened to us. Imagine what it would do for police relations if we sympathized and prayed for police officers. The vast majority of them are good men and women who are just trying to protect and serve as if it was our own child going out into that kind of dangerous profession. Imagine what it would do not only for the unborn and their struggling moms, but for the orphans and the so-called unwanted children if we loved the mothers and loved the children the way that Jesus has loved us. Imagine what that would do for the homeless, the addict, the refugee, the immigrant, the unreached. The church has loved in confounding ways in the past. The church in the first century modeled racial and ethnic reconciliation. Why can't the church in the 21st century? The early church modeled generosity and care for the poor. Not just their poor, but all the poor. This quote from the Emperor Julian the Apostate says this, Nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to the strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. And all of our people see that they lack aid from us. Jesus wants us to stop asking, Who should I love? And start asking, how should I love? By having compassion on our neighbor the way we want people to be compassionate to us. So we, we, we call for these things and we challenge people to these things, not so that we're on the right side of history or so that we get likes on social media. We do this because the world needs a church that loves it the way that Jesus loves the church. We love in ways that don't make sense to the world. I, I heard this story this week. Um, Somebody sent it to me. Richard Fuller, who was uh, one of the early leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention when it, when it broke off from the Northern Baptist Convention and all of the, the shame of our origin as Southern Baptists, Richard Fuller, one of the ways in which he came to Christ is in his home, his family owned slaves. And there was a household slave named Aunt Judy who prayed for years for Fuller when he was a child, 
that he would be converted to Christ. And when he was, she wept at his baptism, saying, the very leaves were clapping their hands for joy. And she turned to Fuller's sister and she said, didn't I tell you so, Miss Harriet? I knew the Lord would bring him. And she continued to pray for him as he became a pastor and he ministered for almost 40 years as a pastor. I tell you this story because what an incredibly powerful testimony to the power of the gospel that you have this lady who has no earthly reason to love or to pray for this little boy other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God used it to bring that little boy to Christ. Now, people may say, Again, I know I'm, I'm treading on uh, you know, dangerous ground here, but there would be people who would hear that story and they would say, that is, that is not helpful. That is just empowering an oppressor, those kinds of things. I can tell you who did not say that to Aunt Judy when she got to heaven, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Because regardless of what box they check, we are called to love in confounding ways because that's the way that Jesus has loved us. So how do you get people to love like this? I can tell you this, it's not by being snarky to them on Twitter and ending your tweet with, do better, be better. The answer to that question, how do you get people to love like this, is the answer to the Sunday school question, who is the Good Samaritan? Now, the church has said throughout the years that the Samaritan points us to Jesus, and that's right. Jesus has compassion on the crowds when he sees them. Jesus, by an act of free grace, saves the lives of people who are perishing. Jesus even pays the bill that we could not pay. And since that's what Christ has done for you, the gospel is meant to change you to love radically, even those you don't agree with, even those who brought it on themselves. One of the amazing things I hear from people in church sometimes is, well, man, should we really help those people who are bringing it on themselves? I'm, I'm thankful Jesus didn't have that attitude. We brought our brokenness on ourselves. yet he came into human existence and, and, and took our brokenness and our sin on himself at the cross. And so, yes, the gospel should transform us to love radically because the good Samaritan points us to Jesus and to a lavish love that we do not deserve. But Jesus also is the man who was beaten up. Jesus was rejected by the Jews. Jesus went outside Jerusalem. Jesus was hung on a cross between thieves. He was stripped. He was beaten as the religious people stood on the side and mocked him while he suffocated to death in his dying gasps. You say, well, John, I, I, I know you're like a Christocentric guy or whatever, but I, I think it's too much to say that the guy beaten up points to Jesus. I mean, I see how the Good Samaritan does, but that's, that's too far to say that the man beaten up does. But here's what Jesus says in Matthew 25. Jesus says in Matthew 25 that at the final judgment, he's going to look at the people who are departing into eternal judgment, and he's going to say to them, the reason that this is happening is because I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was sick and you didn't come to visit me. I was in prison and you did not come to visit me. And they're going to say to him on that day, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and in prison and then 
the hospital and not come to visit you. And he will say to them, as you did not do to the least of these my brothers, you did not do to me. And those who, who go in, you're going to say, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was sick and you came and visited me. They're going to say, when did that happen? He says, as you did to the least of these my brothers, you have done unto me. Matthew 25 tells us what you do with the lowest neighbor, the lowest believer, exposes whether or not you actually love Jesus. Yes, you are justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. And on that day, there will be people, Matthew 25 tells us, who will stand before Jesus who could sing, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. They, they were singing that as children. But Jesus will look at them and they will hear, depart from me because you didn't love me in the least of these my brothers. So as you go about your business, as we go about in the world and we see hardship and we see hurting and we see suffering, as you look into the eyes of an Afghani dad throwing his baby into the arms of U.S. Armed Forces. You see a police captain bleeding to death on the sidewalk. You see a black man face down dying in his gasping breaths. Jesus says, you might just be looking at my face. And the way that you treat them and the way that you love them is the way that you love me. So let's stop asking, who am I supposed to love? And let's start asking, how am I supposed to love? How can I love everybody around me the way that Christ has loved me? Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna stand and sing one more song. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would help us, those who claim your name, to be people who by the power of your spirit love others regardless of who they are the way that we love ourselves. And even beyond that, Lord, I pray that by the power of your spirit and the power of the gospel that you would help us to be those who love others the way that you have loved us. Lord, you loved us when we weren't lovely. You loved us when we were rebellious, we, you loved us when we were incredibly difficult to love. And so, Father, I ask that you would help us who have received mercy to be those who show mercy because clearly, Lord, we are living in a day and an age where the world desperately needs a church that loves like that. So, Father, help us to first start by loving each other and then loving our neighbor the way that Christ has loved us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.